Section 3 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 23. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ginny Rosario. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 23. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 3. The Red-Nosed Lieutenant, A Campaigner's Story. Five and twenty years ago, I was just five and twenty years of age. I was thus neither young nor old. In addition, I was neither handsome nor ugly, neither rich nor poor, neither active nor indolent, neither a Socrates nor a simpleton. More ordinary men than I had been married for love. Poorer men had got credit and rolled on their carriage wheels till it was out and greater fools had been cabinet counselors. Yet all this did not satisfy me. Years had swept along, and I was exactly the same in point of publicity at five-and-twenty that I had been at fifteen. Let no man say that the passion for being something or other in the world's eye is an improbable thing. Show me that man, and I will show him, my lord, A. driving a mail-coach, the Earl of B. betting at a boxing-match, the Marquis of C., the rival of his own grooms, and the Duke of D., a director of the opera. My antagonist has only to look and be convinced, for what could throw those patricians into the very jaws of public jest but the passion for publicity? I pondered long upon this, and my resolution to do something was at length fixed. But the grand difficulty remained. What was the thing to be done? What was the grand chemin des honneurs, the longest stride to the temple of fame, the royal road to making a figure in one's generation? The step was too momentous to be rashly taken, and I took time enough, for I took a year. On my six-and-twentieth birthday, I discovered that I was as wise and as public as on my birthday before, and a year older besides." While I was in this state of fluctuation, my honored uncle arrived in town and called upon me. Let me introduce this most excellent and most mutilated man. He had commenced his career in the American War, a bold, brave, blooming ensign. What he was now I shall not describe, but he had taken the earliest opportunity of glory, and at Bunker's Hill had lost an eye. He was nothing the worse as a mark for an American rifle and at Brandywine he had the honor of seeing Lafayette run away before him, and pay only a right leg as his tribute to the victory. My uncle followed on the road to glory, gaining a new leaf of laurel, and losing an additional fragment of himself in every new battle, till with Burgoyne he left his nose in the swamps of Saratoga, whence having had the good fortune to make his escape, he distinguished himself at the siege of Yorktown, under Cornwallis, and left only an arm in the ditch of the rampart. He had returned a major, and after lying on his back for two years in the military hospital, was set at liberty to walk the world on a pair of crutches and be called colonel. I explained my difficulty to this venerable remnant of soldiership. Difficulty, cried he, starting up on his residuary leg. I see none whatever. You are young, healthy, and have the use of all your limbs— the very thing for the army. I glanced involuntarily at his own contributions to the field. He perceived it, and retorted, Sir, I know the difference between us as well as if I were the field surgeon. 
I should never have advised you to march if you had not limbs enough for the purpose, but you have your compliment, and therefore can afford to lose them, my good uncle, said I. Nephew, was the reply, sneering is no argument, except among civilians, but if a man wants to climb at once to a name, let him try the army. Have you no estate? Why, the regiment is your freehold. Have you no education? Why, the color of your coat will stand you in place of it with three-fourths of the men and all the women. Have you no brains? Why, their absence will never be missed at the mess. And as for the field, not half a dozen in an army ever exhibit any pretensions of the kind. This was too flattering a prospect to be overlooked. I took the advice. In a week was gazetted into a marching regiment, and in another week was on board His Majesty's Transport, Number 10, with a wing of the gallant 30 regiment, tacking out to Portsmouth on our way to Gibraltar. Military men have it that there are three bad passages, the slow, the quick, and the neither quick nor slow, pronouncing the two former detestable, the latter. The storm making a man sick of the sea, the calm making him sick of himself, a much worse thing, and the alternation of calm and storm bringing both sickness into one. My first passage was distinguished by being of the third order. I found my fellow subalterns a knot of good-humoured beings, the boys with the habit of men, the men with the tricks of boys, all full impressed with the honour of the epaulet, and thinking the man who wore two instead of one the most favoured of all things under the sun. We at length came in sight of the famous rock. It loomed magnificently from the sea, and every glass was to the eye as the lines and batteries that looked like teeth in its old white head rose grimly out of the waters. The veterans of the corps were in high delight, and enumerated with the vigor of grateful recollection the cheapness of the wines the snugness of the quarters and the general laudable and illaudable pleasantries of the place the younger listened with the respect due to experience and for that evening an old red-nosed lieutenant of whom no man had ever thought but as a lieutenant before became the centre of a circle ah he blue stocking surrounded with obsequious listeners by virtue of his pre-eminent knowledge of every wine-house in the garrison. Such is the advantage of situation. Nine-tenths of mankind, till they are placed on the spot of display, what are they but red-nosed lieutenants? While we stood on the deck of our tall ship, quietly surging along into the worst of all possible bays, the wind fell, and the sun plunged into the Atlantic like a ball of iron-red hot from the furnace. The garrison flag fell down with it, the evening gun fired, and we prepared for supper, whist, and our final bottle of port on board. In three minutes all this was a dream. Our men were priming, loading, and firing, our sails torn to rags, our masts shot through, our ship was rolling away on the current to Algeziras, the garrison lights were sinking behind us, and the whole ship, captains sailors officers and soldiers a scene of roaring confusion blue lights and musketry we were in action but with what no living eye could discern between the smoke of our own fire and the sudden darkness of the night we could see nothing beyond an occasional flash that seemed to come out of the very bottom of the sea it was before us and behind above us and below 
but the rattle of the balls against our sides and rigging, and now and then a shot taking effect on our company, told us that we had the usual enemy of the garrison reinforcements in full exercise upon us. In fact, the Spanish gunboats, which never missed their opportunity, were out, and never was good ship or gallant crew more piteously pelted. Let our romances talk of Spanish indolence, those fellows let nothing pass. From a cabbage-boat to a three-decker, they had a trial of their long guns on it, and if they could have made the night but half an hour longer, the left wing of the gallant thirty regiment would have closed their campaign in the dominions of his Catholic majesty. But morning broke, and the gunboats, of which there were at least a dozen, seeing the frigate bearing down, which had left us to make the most of our own valor during the night, swept off with their oars to Algeciras, where two of the convoy were seen already lying. To do us justice, we had fired away at a prodigious rate, though we might as well have fired at the moon. There was not a cartridge left among us by daylight, nor a man who was not ready to pledge himself that he had done mortal execution. This foretaste of war was not quite to our liking, but we had gained the victory, such as it was, and conquerors are always easily reconciled to their escape. The gunboats had left the field, the rock was again in full view, shining out in the morning sun. The boats of the frigate hauled us along, for we had neither boat nor oar, nor rope nor sail, and with something of the pleasant expectation of being congratulated on our prowess, we floated into the harbor. This expectation, however, was not exactly fulfilled. As we moved slowly up toward the admiral's ship that lay like a huge bastion under the batteries, my eye accidentally fell on the red-nosed lieutenant. I saw him turning toward the cabin steps and set this down for a disastrous omen. The ports and rigging of the flagship were crowded with men, and our hands were already at our caps to return the imaginary cheers. We were received with roars of laughter. Volleys of sea-wit were poured out upon us. We were burlesqued and jibed in all the naval jargon of the place, asked whether we liked Spanish pickles for supper, if the garabanzas, Spanish peas, were handsomely shelled, whether we had any cigars to sell, and a boat followed us with the crew peeling out, See, the conquering hero comes! The same roars met us from every ship of the fleet, and from our sluggard movements we had the whole in perfection. At the sally-port, when we landed, the laughter of the mob was, if not quite so obstreperous, at least as general, and the same genius of the place followed us till we were lodged in our quarters out of the town. The burlesque of a transport's fighting had amused the regular proficients. Our ragged and dismantled state was calculated only to add to the joke. In short, the old rivalry of sailor and soldier was never less on an equality. This was the first lesson to our pride, and upon whomever else it might have been lost, it was not lost upon me. The garrison life amused me at first view. Its routine, its insipidity, its formality, have wearied many a man. I must leave it to others to tell how all this became more repulsive by the slavish obsequiousness demanded by the higher powers. Talk of courts or prisons, there is not more servility in the one, nor more restraint in the other. Talk of the sublime port or the day of Algiers, 
they are but outlines of the picture of governors military secretaries and town majors some time or other i shall fill them up from the life a week tires your regular militaire of everything but the bottle half the time tired me of the place the people and the pompous deputies of the deputy governor the governor was a statesman and a lover of turtle and venison two things not to be had in perfection out of england in england therefore the governor remained adding by his uniform to the monthly splendor of the commander-in-chief's levies and by his half-yearly speeches to the hereditary slumbers of the house of lords the gallant thirty were in the same predicament with myself we scoffed at the mongrel population jew moor italian spanish negro mulatto the alla podrida of nations we hated the aides-de-camp and laughed at the infinite humility of their bows to their lords and masters their tame squiring of the general's wives aunts mothers cousins and daughters and the exquisite insolence that repaid those hours of office as for everything else we had plenty of parades sour wine condemned cigars and useless time on our hands even the old red-nosed lieutenant gave signs of discontent and swore that the place was changed to all intents and purposes the rest of us were like tebout in frederick's paradise at potsdam we conjugated from morning till night the verb tu all through its persons tenses and moods but all things have an end we received an order to join the expedition to egypt never was regiment so delighted we supped together upon the news and drank farewell to gibraltar and confusion to in bumpers without measure in the very height of our carousel my eye dropped upon my old friend's red nose it served me as a kind of thermometer i observed it diminished of its usual crimson the spirit has fallen thought i there is ill luck in the wind i took him aside but he was then too far gone for regular counsel he only clasped my hand with the fervour of a fellow-drinker and muttered out lifting his glass with a shaking wrist nothing but confoundedly bad brandy in egypt for love or money we sailed cleared the straits rushed on the back of the current for half a dozen hours till we left the rock like the fragment of a cloud congratulated each other on a speedy passage and before the bottle in which we drank to it had gone round found ourselves fixed in a dead calm this is the temptation of the blue mediterranean to all sins of omission and commission in all who spread sail upon its surface an album of the oaths praise invectives and ejaculations begotten and born of its calms from the lips of turk genoese venetian greek corsican sicilian maltese sardinian would be the rarest treasure to a traveller that was ever given to europe since the reign of albums and the confusion of babel the wrath of the englishman is loud and sufficiently expressive but it wants and will forever want the exquisite pungency variety and vigour the intense virulence and steam-engine volubility of the regular mediterranean tongue in this calm we remained for a mortal fortnight the calm of the ocean is a whirlpool to such things in the loveliest of all seas there is no tide to comfort you with the dream that you are in motion without feeling it there is no wave to solace you with the faintest chance that the breeze will ever come 
if the ship were screwed to the bottom of the sea it could not give fewer symptoms of escape if the sea were a field of ice and the voyagers looking out for the north pole their labor could not be more uselessly employed there stood our good ship like the king on a chessboard never to move among the checkers of red and blue yellow and green that inlaid the smooth and mighty expanse colored under the burning sun we were scorched like so many locusts were brown as arabs and as sick of our lives as englishmen so thought i this is the army glory and scarlet may be showy appendages a good mess and a new name on the regimental colors are all well enough in their vocation but where is the honor of being broiled alive the worst had not arrived yet a jew had come on board as we weighed anchor he brought us pumpkins pantaloons and the yellow fever we now began to be aware of the full benefits of his visit three-fourths of our crew were seized the officers had their turn the temperate men went off first so much for science and the course of things my old red-nosed acquaintance stood it out bravely kept aloof from friend and enemy and fought the evil at arm's length bottle in hand we had now lost three subalterns and the rest were making up their minds to follow them when my mentor came into the cabin where i was stretched frying like a guatimozan or st lawrence without the patience of either in my shirt on the bare boards i glanced at his thermometer and never crimson on the lip of siren or sultana more exhilarated me than its intense purple there is a wind coming i saw in its first blush the inquiry was scarcely made when i was flung off the floor into a cot the trunks bottles and benches were hurled about the cabin and the ship was tumbled on her beam ends the wind had come with a vengeance my peep through the cabin window the moment before the dead lights were up showed me a sea that looked like the bottom of a cataract foam black billows bulging clouds and absolute columns of rain the whole firmament was up in arms the wind roared louder than all the speaking trumpets of the deck which were all in requisition at once the thunders rattled like volleys of artillery and away went our ship stripped in a moment of every sail and rope rotten with the heat and dews up the mediterranean like an arrow from the bow at this rate we flew on rushing over shoal and by rock and craggy island every one of which we approached with instant apprehension of finishing our mortal glories there they were all however classic shores and our names would perhaps have not been unhonored if we had laid our bodies under their burn we might have been mentioned in the newspapers and even have had an elegy in a magazine but glory slipped from us on all sides wet weary half-starved and frightened to death we darted through every nook and channel that had ever figured in the history of the cyclades left olympus on the one hand and ida on the other caught glimpses of coves and seo rhodes and hydra and peering through fog and cloud and lashed by sheets of billow and foam i wished them all ten thousand fathom under water nothing could stop us we seemed like the indian pilot in the tale who was to sail round the world till the day of its ending at length one evening the clouds in front took a more sullen hue the sea rose in wilder surges and the tempest tore out our remaining mast never were crew less indebted to the art of navigation for their progress 
At midnight, we struck on the coast of Asia Minor. How we escaped with life is beyond all my knowledge. I recollect nothing but having been thrown by a surge against my friend of the red nose, who was sitting singing, either mad or drunk, by the capstan. A mountain of water lifted us up together, and, further, I have no remembrance. My first returning sensation was that of being tossed about and scorched, sick and stiffened. I opened my eyes, and the first sight that I saw was the lieutenant. He was pouring his favorite brandy down my throat, and superintending half a dozen rough, long-bearded fellows in sheepskin jackets who were stripping and rubbing me under the most scorching sun that ever parched the human cuticle. As I rose, I perceived the same operation going on with others. We had lost no officer, but a few of our rank and file. The ship had been thrown in upon a wild shore, but so close to land, that escape was easy to all who had not lost their senses. The insensible were saved the trouble of the effort by the waves, and the lieutenant and I had been rolled on the sand with our arms round each other's necks, in the most amatory style possible. The ship was a wreck. The storm, when it scooped the crew out of her like a colonel, had made no scruple of doing its will by the shell, and had toyed with it until not a fragment the length of a sword was left. She was absolutely ground to powder. As the day advanced, hunger compelled us to think of our commissariat. But to speak a syllable which our new friends of the shore could understand was beyond all our literature. How little I should have dreamed three months before of being starved for not speaking Karamanian. However, there is a language which was made before the alphabet, and of this we availed ourselves with great vigor. We pointed to our mouths and our haversacks, which were equally unemployed, and the benevolent savages, every soul of them robbers by regular profession, from father to son, since the days of Pompey the Great, intimated in the same language that we should soon be better provided for. With some of us there arose the not irrational doubt whether this was to be accomplished by feeding us or making us feed them. Soldiers are no great geographers. The line leave that business to the staff, the staff to the artillery, the artillery to the engineers, and the engineers to Providence. At our council, which was held on a row of knapsacks, and with one pair of trousers among its seven sages, it was asserted, with equal show of reason, that we were in Africa, in Arabia, in Turkey, and in the Black Sea. However, our sheepskin friends were urgent for our departure, and pointed towards some of their fellows who were making gestures of all kinds up the mountain. We began to climb. The rocks were sharp, slippery with seaweeds, and almost perpendicular. When we had scrambled up about halfway, I looked round, and the crowd of climbers clinging to this huge wall of rock in their red jackets looked like a flight of flamingos. I was more fortunate than the rest. After infinite fatigue, and the coming into my head of some of those toys of desperation, which prompt men on precipices to finish their trouble and their lives together, I had scrambled into a large fissure of the cliff, from which the way to the summit was comparatively easy. On that summit stood a colossal savage telegraphing his countrymen as they ascended, and apparently exchanging signals with a party on the opposite side of the ridge. I will confess that the thought occurred with renewed force to me, that on that spot our necks were to be broken. The man was almost a giant. He was naked to the waist, 
and his magnificent muscular figure and bust-like head and countenance might have served for the model of a classic hero but i was never less charmed by the picturesque in the human form and involuntarily looked round to see in what corner of the rock i could best make battle the caramanian observing my reluctance plunged down caught me in his arms like a child and in a moment sprang with me to the summit of the precipice the ridge was not the breadth of a horse's back he seated me on it astride and fixed me in astonishment indescribable the sight below was like magic i sat on the edge of a circle of mighty precipices surrounding a vast and lovely bay never was the richest bowl of porcelain more strangely figured and richly stained than the sides of this magnificent cup never was molten silver more shining than the waters within its round upon these waters lay a fleet and upon their shore were moving columns and masses of troops that looked in the depth like huge beds of crimson and blue flowers i was five thousand feet above this splendid spectacle the fleet were the british fleet and the troops the british army we had been cast on shore close to the finest bay in all asia the bay of marmaris we finally sailed for egypt found the french building fortifications on the shore and like a generous enemy landed just where they had provided for our reception but the world knows all this already and i disdain to tell what everybody knows but the world does not know that we had three councils of war to settle whether the troops should land in gaiters or trousers and whether they should or should not carry three days pipe clay and blacking in their knapsacks the most valuable facts are we see often lost for want of our being a little behind the curtain the famous landing was the noisiest thing conceivable the world at a distance called it the most gallant thing and i have no inclination to stand up against universal opinion but whether we were fighting against the sandhills or the french or the sun and his strength whether we were going to the right or left or the rear whether we were beating or beaten no living man could have told in two minutes after the first shot it was all clamour confusion bursting of shells dashing of water splitting of boats and screams of the wounded the whole passing under a coverlet of smoke as fuliginous as ever rushed from furnace under this blanket of the dark we pulled on landed fought and conquered and for our triumph had every man his length of excellent sand for the night the canopy of heaven for his tent and the profoundest curses of the commissariat for his supper on we went day after day fighting the french starving and scorching till we found them in our camp before daybreak on the memorable twenty-first of march we fought them there as men fight in the pit of a theatre every one for himself the french who are great tacticians and never fight but for science's sake grew tired before john bull who fights for the love of the thing the frenchman fights but to manoeuvre the englishman manoeuvres but to fight so as manoeuvring was out of the question we carried the affair all after our own hearts but this victory had its price for it cost the army its brave old general and it cost me my old red-nosed lieutenant we were standing within half a foot of each other in front of the little ruin where the french invincibles made a last struggle they fired a volley before they threw themselves on their knees according to the national custom of earning their lives 
when I saw my unlucky friend tumbled head over heels and stretched between my legs. There was no time for thinking of him then. The French were hunted out. La bayonnette dans l'écoute. We followed. The Battle of Alexandria was won, and our part of the success was to be marched ten miles off to look after some of their fragments of baggage. We found nothing, of course, for neither in defeat nor in victory does the French man ever forget himself. In our bivouac, the thought of the lieutenant came over me. In the heat of the march, I could not have thought of anything mortal but my own parched throat and crippled limbs. Absurd as the old subaltern was, I could have better spared a better man. We had been thrown together in some strange ways, and as the result of my meditations, I determined to return and see what become of the man with the red nose. Leave was easily obtained, for there was something of the odd feeling for him that a regiment has for one of those harmless madmen who sometimes follow its drums in a ragged uniform and formidable hat and feather. It was lucky for the lieutenant that I rode hard, for I found him as near a premature exit as ever hero was. A working party had already made his last bed in the sand, and he was about to take that possession which no ejectment will disturb when I felt some throbbing about his heart. The soldiers insisted that as they were ordered out for the purpose of inhuming, they should go through with their work. But if they were sullen, I was resolute, and I prevailed to have the subject deferred to the hospital. After an infinity of doubt, I saw my old friend set on his legs again, but my labor seemed in vain. Life was going out. The doctors prohibited the bottle, and the lieutenant felt, like Shylock, that his life was taken away when that was taken, by which he did live. He resigned himself to die with the composure of an ancient philosopher. The night before I marched for Carlo, I sat an hour with him. He was a changed man, talked more rationally than I had believed within the possibility of brains so many years adjust with port, expressed some rough gratitude for my trouble about him, and finally gave me a letter to some of his relatives in England. The regiment was on its march at daybreak. We made our way to Carlo, took possession, wondered at its filth, admired its grand mosque, execrated its water, its provisions, its population, were marched back to Storm Alexandria, where I made all possible search for the lieutenant, but in vain, were saved the trouble by the capitulation of the French, were embarked, landed at Portsmouth just one year from our leaving it, and as it pleased the wisdom of Napoleon and the folly of our ministry were disbanded. I had no reason to complain, for though I had been shipwrecked and starved, sick and wounded, I had left neither my life nor my legs behind. Others had been less lucky, and from the losses in the regiment I was now a captain. One day, in looking over the relics of my baggage, a letter fell out. It was the red-nosed lieutenant's. My conscience reproached me and I believe for the moment my face was as red as his nose. I delivered the letter. It was received by a matron at the head of three of the prettiest maidens in all Lancashire, the country of beauty, a blonde, a brunette, and a younger one who was neither, and yet seemed alternately both. I liked the blonde and the brunette infinitely, but the third I did not like, for I fell in love with her, which is a very different thing. The lieutenant was her uncle, and, regretted as his habits were, this family circle had much to say for his generosity. 
Mary's hazel eye made a fool of me, and I asked her hand that they might make a fool of no one else. The colonel, without the nose, was of course invited to the wedding, and he was in such exultation that either the blonde or the brunette might have been my aunt if she pleased, but they exhibited no tendency to this gay military torso, and the colonel was forced to content himself with the experience of his submissive nephew. The wedding day came. The three sisters looked prettier than ever in their vestal white. The colonel gave the bride away, and in their tears and congratulations of this most melancholy of all happy ceremonies, Mary chose her fate. We returned to dinner, and were seated, all smiles, when the door opened, and in walked the red-nosed lieutenant. Had I seen, like Brutus, the immortal Julius's ghost, I could not have been more amazed, but nature was less doubting. The matron threw herself into his arms, the blonde and the brunette clasped each a hand, and my bright-eyed wife forgot her conjugal duties and seemed to forget that I was in the world. There was indeed some reason for doubt. The man before us was fat and florid enough, but the essential distinction of his physiognomy had lost its regal hue. All this, however, was explained by degrees. After my departure for Cairo, he had been given over by the doctors, and, sick of taking physic and determining to die in his own way, he had himself carried up the Nile. The change of air did something for him, the absence of the doctors perhaps more. He domesticated himself among the peasants, above the cataracts, drank camel's milk, ate rice, wore a hake, and rode a buffalo. Port was inaccessible, and date brandy was not to his taste. Health forced itself on him, and the sheik of the district began to conceive so good an opinion of the stranger that he offered him his daughter with a handsome portion of buffaloes in marriage. The offer was declined, but African offense is a formidable thing, and after having had a carbine load of balls discharged one night through his door, he thought it advisable to leave the neighborhood of his intended father-in-law. I am not about to astonish the world and throw unbelief on my true story by saying that the lieutenant has since drunk nothing but the limpid spring. Whatever were his muscle-man habits, he resumed his native tastes with the force of nature. Port still had temptations for him, but prudence, in the shape of the matron's sister and the pretty nieces, was at hand, and like Sancho's physician, the danger and the glass vanished at a sign from those gentle magicians." Our chief anxiety arose from the good fellowship of the colonel. He had settled within a field of us, and his evenings were spent by our fireside. He had been, by the chances of service, once on campaign with the lieutenant, and all campaigners know that there is no Freemason sign of friendship equal to that of standing to be shot together. But there was an unexpected preservative in this hazardous society. The colonel was incapable of exhibiting in the center of his countenance that living splendor which made Falstaff raise Bardolph. To the honor of his admiral, he could carry no lantern in his poop. If envy could have invaded his generous soul, it would have arisen at the old restored distinction of his comrade. He watched over his regimen, kept him to the most judicious allowance of claret, and the red nose of the lieutenant never flamed again. End of section 3